0: You guys awake? A little bit, worn out from last week. I asked Jared if I could pray the prayer of intercession this morning. Usually one of our elders prays it. And um, I just wanted to take a few minutes and um, just acknowledge that um, I'm tired. I kind of wanted to pray because I need prayer. We've been running around this week. Um, it's always something it seems like. Uh, the air is still not working in the building. Um, you feel some air. But we need to pray that the electricians will get that finished this week. It's been go- ongoing for a month. And um, uh, I just want to take some time and just ask you, if you would, just to quiet your hearts before the Lord. I think in the midst of all that we're going through, it's easy just to try to, just to continue to push And we've had a lot that's going on Um, just on our team. um, Peter and Lori had a tree that fell in their house and they're finally getting work. that's going to begin happening on Monday and it's a whole journey ahead for them. Uh, Michael and Kristen have been moving for the last few weeks, right Michael? Appraisals got backed up and um, we built a computer this week that we tried to get to work this morning that didn't work and so we've been running around like crazy swapping computers out like every week. And it just seems like it's just like always something. And I think that God, in the midst of our always something, wants us to slow down. And just to acknowledge how much we need Him. Wouldn't it be sad if during this time of pandemic, that we walk around with masks on our face, and that we miss the the symbol that's right in front of us, that we are a people who are in need. We're in need of God. So if you would, just bow your heads and bow your hearts with me and... Um, let's talk to our Creator and our Lord. God, we are thankful. Um, thankful that you love us and you care for us. Just like this uh, story that we call the kid's story um, that we've just read and that we're all kids. And God, we are thankful that when we go our own way and that when we, we, when we think we know what's best, That, God, you show patience and mercy and forgiveness and loving kindness toward us. And you wait upon us. And you desire to lavish uh, your love on us. God, I pray that we could take this story to heart. God, I pray for our Mercy Hill family. I pray for uh, those families and individuals who are able to be with us today in person. and Even if we're here with masks on, we're reminded that, um, that, that we need your help, God. And God, we pray for those who uh, are watching via the live stream. More than half our church who are not able to be here in person. And God, we We pray that during this time that we would not seek to run past you um, or just to, God, just to crowd that things would get back to normal. But God, we pray that um, this would be a time in which your church would pray and that we would acknowledge our need for you. God, that we would be reminded that we are so not in control. But God, at the same time, that we would be reminded that, that in our weakness, you are strong. And so, God, I pray for teachers and students who, um, especially those who are in the virtual environment, and just the, the tiredness that comes day after day, and looking at a screen, and trying to navigate so many uh, different rhythms in life. God, we pray for strength. We pray you would give parents and teachers and students wisdom to know uh, best how to interact in this new environment. Uh, God, I pray for those who are unable to get out of their homes and who have other people shopping for them and, God, who just feel as if the world has moved on and left them behind. God, I pray in their loneliness today that they would seek you and you tell us that you can be found, that when we knock that you always answer. And God, I pray that they would be reminded that you know more than anyone else what it's like to be alone. And that you are a comforter who is with them. God, I pray that they would also reach out through other means to communicate with friends and just to remind themselves that they're not alone. God, I pray for churches who are trying to navigate um, in-person gatherings or, or, or not, and all the things that comes with elder agreement and making decisions. And so, God, I just pray for good friends who I know week after week, they're trying to navigate this. And so, God, I think of Scott Benjamin, who's waiting on a kidney transplant right now. And God, I pray for Scott in the Refuge Church out in Lakeland. And I pray that you would, uh, Just bring healing to Scott's body. I pray that you would bring um, someone very quickly um, that he could have this kidney transplant. Pray for uh, their leadership. God, I pray for Island Community Church and for Barrett Bowden and Robbie Crafton. And God, the way that you're using them in uptown and downtown and throughout Midtown. God, I thank you for the encouragement that Barrett is to me. Uh, God, I pray for Ollie Chambers and Mosaic. And I pray for them as they're um, navigating in-person gatherings. And uh, God, I pray that you would just encourage their body. And uh, as we were here with some of their church in Connected Weekend, just this last February, um, God, we pray for good for them. We pray that they would reach many people in the Voluntown Evergreen neighborhood and in Midtown. God, I pray for SOMA leaders across the southeast who are going to be uh, gathered here in this building this next weekend. Just 35 elders and staff uh, who are coming here. God, I pray that as Jeff speaks to us, I pray that um, you would give us a desire to see the gospel saturate Memphis. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for revival and for awakening that would be far greater than anything one church or one denomination could accomplish God, we pray that you would be on the move and that we, would, that we would see your work even in these trying times and that more than ever we would depend on you, Jesus. It's in your name and in your strength that we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes uh, via the live stream from Juan Rogers. And so grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. Today's scripture
1: reading comes from the book of John chapter 12.
0: All right. Thanks, Juan. It's good to see your face, even if it's on a screen. Appreciate that. We're studying John's gospel. We're halfway through. We've spent about 30 weeks studying the first half of this gospel. So roughly three years of Jesus' life. The second half of the gospel is going to roughly cover the last week of Jesus' life. And keep in mind, this gospel is written by Jesus' best friend. And so we get some things in this gospel that we don't get in the other's. Uh, In fact, about 90% of this material is new material. And so, in the text that we look at today, if you look in verse 12, you'll see that it begins by saying, the next day. So, it's Sunday, most likely. It's five days before Jesus' crucifixion. Passover is the coming weekend. And in this text, we're going to spend the next seven chapters looking at Jesus' last words. Next seven chapters. So if you think about last words. Last words are really important. If you've ever had a moment where you spent with a loved one. In the last moments of their life. You know that those last moments have a way of clarifying things. You don't talk about the weather. You talk about what's truly important. And what's truly on your heart. And you share with them about the things that really matter. And that's what we get from Jesus In these last words that we'll study over the coming weeks and months ahead. In this text, it says that there is a large crowd that's gathered. And I think whenever we read the scriptures, oftentimes when we think about these kind of narratives, we we kind of default to whatever bad Jesus movie we saw in the past. Like, you know, a bunch of guys who don't look very dark skinned, they're like really Caucasian looking, almost like maybe you've got Jesus almost a little blonde headed. And they're really bad films typically. And they really miss the mark on what Passover would have been like. Uh, There was a, a historian named Josephus who wrote just a couple of centuries after Jesus lived. And during Passover, Josephus tells us that the city of Jerusalem would be Have you guys ever been to like Groose Ferry Lake or Tennessee River? Have you ever been there during the winter versus the summer? That's like Jerusalem at Passover. So you go to Tennessee River or or Groose Ferry Lake, and like in the winter, there's no one there, it's abandoned. And then you go in the summer, and you're like, how many people can fit on one body of water? Like, how many rednecks are there in the world? They're all here. I'm not saying the city of Jerusalem was filled with rednecks. But it was filled typically with about 80,000 permanent residents. It would swell to nearly 3 million during the time of Passover. So it kind of gives you an idea. When John says a large crowd, probably a little bigger crowd than what you had been thinking. And they're there to celebrate freedom from Egypt. They're remembering what it was like when they were an enslaved people. And how God had delivered them through Moses to the promised land and now they're looking forward once again with the hopes of being set free. So that's what's going through their minds. I mean, it's, it's patriotic time. It's patriotic week. And there's three million people who are there to celebrate. And verse 13 tells us that it seems that Jesus was met on the road from Bethany by pilgrims who had already reached Jerusalem and who went out to meet Him. Once they heard, he was approaching. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. People are coming out of Jerusalem in order to meet him. And as they meet him, they shout, Hosanna. Which means, give us salvation now. Any idea what they had in mind as they were considering Jesus coming into the city? Give us salvation now. And they're waving palm branches, which was a symbol of victory over their enemy. That indicates the people mistakenly thought that Jesus would then and there bring national deliverance to Israel. Over their political enemies, the Romans. But the problem is, that's their thinking and it would cause Jesus' popularity not to last. In just five short days, the shouts of praise would turn to angry calls for crucifixion. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem, we see, on a war horse, whipping the political aspirations of the crowd into some kind of frenzy. It's not what He does. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And then there's a quote from, uh, I believe it's from Zechariah chapter 9, in which Zechariah is quoting a psalm. How often do we do this in the church? Like, as we think of Jesus, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse. How often do we expect that in our lives? Or in the church, how often do we even promise that? Think about some of the sermon series that you've heard in the past. 30 Days to a Better Marriage. 30 days to your best marriage. Do you realize that about 75-80% to of the problems that you have in your marriage, you brought into your marriage from your family of origin before you even met your spouse and the church is going to claim that we're going to fix your marriage in 30 days. That's humorous, isn't it? Like how often do we promote Jesus on a war horse... How often are we looking for a Savior to fix our lives in the temporary instead of a Lord who we will serve both now and in eternity? Instead of a war horse, Jesus rides in on a young donkey as a gentle, lowly, and humble Savior. In verses 16 through 19... The disciples and the people of Jerusalem, they don't understand the symbol of the donkey. That's completely lost on them. They don't understand that Jesus is coming to war against sin, not against Rome. He's coming to deliver peace to sinners through his death on the cross. To make you and me friends of God. To die in our place as our substitute. So many continued to follow Jesus because of the sign He had performed in raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's a warning to us that there's a danger within the church today that people seek Jesus today for how He can save them now. Never intending to follow Him and surrender their lives to Him. People who aren't understanding that they're living under the judgment of God. In verses 20 and 22, there are uh, some Greeks who show up. And these Greeks who went up to worship, I don't know if you have a context for Greeks that much. It it has nothing to do with togas or toga parties. So just in case you had that in mind, um, that's not who the Greeks were. They were the first hippies, by the way. Most people don't realize that first legitimate hippies were the Greeks. Um, I read a paper on this. It was, it was uh, highly, a highly entertaining paper back in college. It was my senior thesis. It was entitled, The Nature of Conversion According to Paul and Hellen- Hellenistic Moralist Philosophers. I can get you a copy. It's great reading, especially if you ever need to try to get sleepy in bed. But one of the things that I determined in writing that, and I didn't actually say this in the paper, but that the Greeks were the first hippies. Um, they were always looking for like the latest thing. And so they find Philip, who has a Greek name, and they're looking for a favor. They're like, maybe this guy can help us out. The Greeks were always moving from religion to religion and philosophy to philosophy and teacher to teacher. They were people with inquiring minds who wanted to know. They were the very first people who ever traveled just to see new places and to discover uh, new ideas. They're a lot like modern seekers today, deciding what they want to believe this week. A little Buddha here, a little Oprah there, a little tolerance here, a little save the earth. And you've got something, you just throw it all together. And that's what the Greeks were an awful lot like. And so when we see that they came up to worship Jesus, it doesn't mean that they were true believers, but they were curious. So you've got Greeks standing there with with cameras hanging around their necks, wondering if they can have their picture taken with Jesus. They're looking for a photo op. And so they turn and they ask Philip, the guy with the Greek name, and he's uncertain, and so he turns to his friend uh, Andrew, and, and Jesus answers in the most surprising way. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's the exact opposite of what he said his entire ministry from when he turned the water into wine and, and his mom's like bugging him at, at the wedding. And, and he, what did he say to his mom? He said, my hour is not yet come. We saw it in John 2 verse 4. as He says, my time is not yet come. But when Jesus said that his time had come, and when Jesus said glorified, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. No one expected that to mean crucified. And there's a big message in that for us as believers today. Because they thought of the conquest of the armies of God, but Jesus meant the conquest of the cross. I wonder how much this plays into our thinking today when we're called to attempt great things for God. When we follow God into hard places, how often do we expect the armies of God to come rushing in to rescue us from difficult circumstances? When in reality, Jesus is calling us to join Him, not in conquest, but in suffering. Service that oftentimes leads to small Victories, but service that is painful and feels very unrewarding in the present. Jesus calls us as his followers to hard places, and we oftentimes expect the armies of God to come rushing in. Katie and I were talking this last couple of weeks just about some of the hard places that God has called us to, and. And this is one of them, to plant an urban church in a context where we knew that popping a sign up that said church would really do no good. It would probably cause more people to want to turn around and walk the other way. Putting our kids in public school, which is something that we just thought and felt like God laid on our heart and we reevaluate every year, and there's no right or wrong answer about Public school or private school or home school. But that's where God has led us to invest our kids. And invest our time and energy. And it is a hard place. And I think if you asked me nine years ago. So what are all the great stories that you've seen? How, how you've changed the public school. Maybe not the public school system. But at least Snowden School or Central High School. And the, the stories are very small. The stories are painful. Of serving families families here in poverty. And when I say poverty, I mean poverty spiritually and poverty relationally and, yes, poverty financially. Even the stories in our life that God has called us into hard places of adoption and foster care and how we've discovered that, that those stories mean that we can't move at the same pace of life that we even see some of our friends moving at or that we even see other church leaders Moving at. They're hard places. How often in those hard places. Do we expect the armies of God to ride in. And instantly save the day. For victories to be quickly won. But instead we see the need for steady service. That requires patience. And what Eugene Peterson would call long obedience in the same direction. And I would add for the rest of our lives. Why would anyone possibly choose this way of life? Because Jesus is talking about discipleship. He's talking about what it looks like to follow Him. And so why would anyone possibly choose this way of life of following Jesus into service and sacrifice? And the answer is this. Discipleship involves great cost and great reward. Great cost and Great reward. Jesus' next statements would have shocked his listeners. And if we're honest with ourselves, they should shock us as well. We've heard so many messages over the years that (coughs) they present the Bible as this kind of self-help, fix-your-life type of book. When in reality, following Jesus means entering into struggle and sacrifice and death. Struggle and sacrifice and death but with great reward. With great reward. Don't miss that part of it. Three quick truths to discipleship that I want to end with today. They come in verses 24, 25, and 26. I entitled this message, The Cost of Discipleship. Three truths to discipleship. We see the first one in verse 24. As Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The first cost of discipleship or the first truth of discipleship that Jesus shows us is that life only comes through death. Life only comes through death. The grain of wheat was ineffective. It was unfruitful as long as it was preserved in safety and security. It was when it was thrown into the cold ground as if it were buried as if in a tomb that it bore fruit. Not only was Jesus talking about himself, but he was talking about you and me as well. In order to find life, we have to die. We have to surrender our lives to Jesus, to to die to selfish ambition and selfish dreams and sinful patterns. We yield our lives to him completely. And Jesus shows us what that looks like in in Luke chapter 9. I want to read these verses to you because I think they're oftentimes misunderstood. And Jesus was able to tell us in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. What this looks like, this daily surrender. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When Jesus calls us daily to take up our cross, this is not some type of symbol of taking up a burden for Jesus. I think that's what many people oftentimes think. Jesus is calling me to take up a burden. No one saw Jesus carrying his cross up to Golgotha and thought of it as a symbol for carrying a burden. Nobody thought that. They thought, no, he's carrying a tool that brought about death. The most painful and humiliating means possible. And Jesus calls for his followers for us to die daily. To ourselves in order to live to bear much fruit for the kingdom of God. Just give you a question to consider and then we'll move on to the second truth of discipleship. But how is Jesus calling you to die to self today? How is Jesus calling you to die to self today? Let me give you a little hint. It probably will not look like success in the world's eyes. In fact, it'll probably look like the opposite. How is Jesus calling you to die to self today? Jesus goes on, and in verse 25, he says, Whoever loses his life, whoever I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Second truth of discipleship is we save our lives by spending them. We save our lives by spending them. If you love your life, Jesus says you will lose it. It doesn't mean that you can't find it. What he means is that you will destroy your life. Your life will be focused on making yourself great rather than serving God and glorifying him and making him great. The one who is truly great, the one who's been great for all of time before time even began, our creator, our Lord. Hebrews 13:5 helps us understand how we can spend our lives. Hebrews 13:5 says, "Keep your life free from love of money." And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Money is probably the single greatest plague to American spirituality. People who love their lives are motivated by selfishness and the desire for security. They hoard their lives. They have backups to their backup security plans. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen this in people. People. But there is no amount of security that can save them when it's time for them to meet their maker. And their lives will be judged according to whether they believed in Jesus as their substitute. Who died in their place and grants them righteousness. Or whether they love their life and live for their own righteousness. And live for their own vainglory. Or live for the glory of their creator and their Lord. Where is Jesus calling you to spend your life in order to store up eternal treasures in heaven? I want you to consider that question. As we think about, we save our lives by spending them. So where is Jesus, you can throw this up on the screen guys. Where is Jesus calling you to spend your life in order to store up eternal treasures in heaven? Once again... Probably not going to look like success in this kingdom. Finally, in verse 26, Jesus said, "Service comes greatness. But not just any type of service. Not just any type of service that we would choose. But followers of Jesus are living for the approval of one. They're living for the Father's approval. And and this is is service that's all-encompassing. This isn't about a list of rules. This is a way of life. That influences everything about us, every decision we make, every value and rhythm of life. This isn't about a tradition. This isn't about going to church on a Sunday morning or giving an offering. This is all-encompassing. This is everything. And as Christians, we live incredibly short-sighted lives. Incredibly short-sighted lives. There's a social science research that that many of you heard of years ago and you've forgotten. Um, It goes like this. You you, you take a small child um, and you place them in front of you and and you give them a marshmallow. And you tell them if they'll wait wait 15 minutes to eat that marshmallow, that you will give them a second marshmallow. Or, Or you could do it with ice cream. You could say, hey, if you will wait 15 minutes to eat this ice cream, you can have ice cream for an entire week. For a long period of time, researchers thought that this was all about willpower. What they came to realize is that the kids who tested best didn't have greatest willpower. They had affluence. They, they had thoughts like, I've had a marshmallow before. I know what they're like. They're not that great. Or, hey, if I don't get the marshmallow, that's okay. Mom and dad will take me out for ice cream this afternoon. But it was kids who had maybe never tasted a marshmallow before. Or who thought, I don't know if this is real or not. I might not get the... If I never get the two, who cares if I don't get the one? I'm going to try the one. And so it was those who had the greatest affluence. Not willpower. And it seems to me that as followers of Jesus, that we, if we could realize... The affluence that we have when it comes to the kingdom of God. That God has seated us with Him in the heavenlies. That He has adopted us as His children. That He has given us the riches of His kingdom. That that everything He offers to Jesus, He offers to us. And He calls us. And He says that we are brothers and sisters with Christ. But the Christian life ultimately isn't even about delayed gratification. It's about ultimate gratification. As we worship our Savior and our King, we live for the One who created life. Therefore, He knows what it means to truly live. As you think about this concept of discipleship, Jesus is saying the same thing in different ways. He's calling us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Him. I'll leave you with this story. There's an age long forgotten when obedient Christians packed up their worldly belongings in a pine casket and sailed the oceans to a distant land. Before its ultimate use, the constantly visible casket served as a daily seal of the missionary's commitment to take up Jesus' cross among the poor and the lost. Before their ships would sail, these Christian servants would scribble with tears and ink their own last letters. These letters were penned in Bibles and on weathered parchment in a desperate attempt to explain their divine compulsion to give up everything and everyone to serve the lost and the hurting. At her final farewell, surrounded by parents and siblings, a 20-year-old single lady would hand her father her last letter. She would tearfully embrace, board the ship, and sail off, never to return. Karen Watson was a young Christian worker. She was murdered in Iraq back in 2004 because of her bold service to the Lord. At her funeral, Karen's last letter was read by her pastor. Dear pastor, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. She went on to write the missionary heart, which is, by the way, who we all are missionaries. It cares more than some think is wise, risks more than some think is safe, dreams more than some think is practical, expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. She went on to write, I love you and my church family in His care, Karen. This, my friends, is the normal Christian life. This is the cost of discipleship. Let me invite the band to come to the stage and invite you to bow your heads and pray. Father, thank you for your words. Father, thank you for calling us to be your servants. God, thank you for the reminder that that life only comes through death. Would you show us the areas of our life where we need to surrender in order that we could save our lives by spending them in your service, in order that we could find greatness? By serving you, God, by seeing your glory revealed and your kingdom known. God, these are hard truths. They're so countercultural to what we experience on a daily basis. God, through your spirit, would you remind us of what it looks like to follow hard after you? And would you give us the strength to obey? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.